brought to you by Penguin. And he went home that night and phoned Leo and rewrote the whole script. And that's how I became the sort of film's bad guy. That's amazing. Uh, Kidnapping his son at the end. That was never in the script. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, the place where we lift the lid on creativity. For the next three months, we will be putting out weekly episodes to keep you supplied with free accessible conversations with some of the world's leading writers and creators. Each episode, our guest chooses a handful of objects that have inspired their work, and then we quite simply have a conversation. I'm Nihal Arthanaik, and we're coming to you remotely, of course, from my home and the home of my guest. So please do forgive any glitches or noises off. Today, I'm joined down the line by an actor whose roles have included playing a CIA counter-terrorism director and Captain Poison alongside Leonardo DiCaprio in Blood Diamond. And today, he's here to talk about narrating the Penguin classic version of War of the Worlds, amongst other things. Welcome, David Harewood. Hi, David. Hello, sir. I've been speaking to a number of artists, as you can imagine, over the last four weeks or so. And is it the career that you have? Is it something that very much defines your identity? So without it, you feel as though part of who you are is not there? Or, or are you very good at just separating it? Look, here's my life and here's my job. Oh, my God, no. As soon as I had the kids, it was a job. And, you know, I've, I feel very lucky about that, that I can switch off very, very easily. I switch off when I'm doing this. So it's, <laughs> it's very much become a, a job. And it's one I enjoy. It's, it's, um, it's fun. But, yeah, I can separate them very easily. You've said that narrating War of the Worlds was a career highlight. I mean, there's an esteemed list of people who have done this before. And your voice is absolutely brilliant. Oh, well, I mean, nowhere near as good as, you know, the likes of Richard Burton and Liam Neeson, but um, it was just a real pleasure to do it. Very difficult. It's a very difficult read. You know, that kind of H.G. Wells style. I mean, there, there are certain passages that get extremely detailed about the Martians and what they look like and what they're composed of. I mean, I'm not the best sight reader anyway, but, you know, I, I mean, that's a skill that... Um, certain people have. It took a lot of concentration, but I really, really, there were certain passages that, you know, I remember this from um, from that. What was that? Well, I think there's one that's been put to music and, you know, that part where they say, but slowly they drew their plans against us. It's just, it just sort of sends shivers up your spine. And as soon as I was reading it, I was like, wow, this is fantastic. And, you know, for a, for an actor, you know, we all, we all love that dramatic stuff, you know, so <laughs> it was wonderful to do. I was really intrigued when I was listening to you thinking about how you project when you don't have any facial expressions Mm. to send that message to an audience. So it's all in your voice right? and how challenging that is. Yeah, well, you have to be very descriptive and that's one of the things you... um you learn, you know, with the likes of doing things like Shakespeare, you know, just how to temper the vowels, how to really sort of, you know, draw the drama out of the words. And you know, I was never, never paid a blind bit of notice at school, but, you know, when I started acting, suddenly it was, it was falling in love with words and English literature and finding the beauty and just the vowel sound, sun, moon, you know, just loving that and just kind of um, really relishing it, uh, getting into it and, you know, when you get something as fantastic as, as I say, the War of the Worlds, there's a one passage right at the end where they are, the, the, the chap is sort of walking through Regent's Park, I think it is, and the Martians are sort of dying. And for some reason, it was the only passage in the book that I read from start to finish. 
without sort of slipping over a word or, or tumbling over a sort of vowel or something. And it, it was so magical, this sort of seeing the sunrise and walking through Kilburn. There, the monsters stood still. And it was just so dramatic and beautiful that I really started to sort of slow down. Because I think it's one of the only pieces in the book that isn't frantic. They aren't running, they're not scared, they're not being attacked. It was just the morning after they died. So there was a silence and a sort of stillness. And it kind of it encouraged me to slow down. And I just loved it. I just loved reading this slow walk through the park. And there they were, these monstrous shapes still in the air. It was fantastic, really fantastic. Because of your experience with Shakespeare, David, did you find it quite easy to get into the language of over a century ago when H.G. Wells wrote this? I believe 1897 was when it was first serialised. Mm. Did you find that quite fluid to get into the way that the sentences were structured and the use of words, and words, of course, that are archaic that we don't use today? Exactly. No, I actually found it quite difficult. I have to say it, was a really, it wasn't an easy read. Uh, and again, this is after Shakespeare uses verse and poems and, and alliteration and just there's wonderful imagery. So you can kind of, you can really sort of disappear into it. Whereas this was quite difficult. It was, uh, as you say, archaic language and many words that we don't recognise and different characters and fear and dread and sort of, you know, you had to, to keep up the pace. So, so it, was, it, was, it was tough. It was a tough read. It wasn't easy by any means. Moments of frustration in the process? Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, without a doubt. Many. You know, you, start, you, you sit there thinking, I'm just rubbish. <laughs> 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 because it, it, as you say, it is a really, it's quite archaic language. And you find yourself tripping over. What does that word mean? And it was, as I say, incredibly descriptive. As he talked about the Martians, they were, it was what they were made of and the leathery look of their skin. And it goes into, it just goes off on this tangent of measurements and weight and depth. And it's, it's really, really incredibly difficult to read. Incredibly difficult. So did you find this then, was it exhilarating to be out of your comfort zone? Oh, yeah. I mean, I knew it was a very difficult read and I knew it was a famous a book. I knew there were some very famous people that um, had gone before me. So it was... Wow, only Orson Welles, I mean. Only Orson Welles and Richard Burton. <laughs> you know, it's so incredibly out of my comfort zone and incredibly challenged because, you know, you wanted to make it as best as you could, but you know, that little voice in your head is going, you're rubbish. So uh, you just had to keep calming that down. And Did you say yes straight away when they asked you to do it? Yeah, of course. Right. Okay. I mean, doing something like that is, it's a once in a lifetime thing. You don't get asked to do things like that every day of the week. How long into it did you start to think, good grief, I wish I hadn't said yes to this? <laughs> I no, I never, I never ever thought I, I would never do it. It was just, and I read the book from cover to cover myself, just to give myself, you know, knowledge of the book. But reading it aloud is incredibly difficult. At the same time, when, you, when I was stuck there in Vancouver, it was wonderful to be reading about Paddington Station and Kilburn and Camden and parts that I recognised and parts of London that I knew. And here I was reading this book that was written over 100 years ago, talking about areas that I knew. So it was really fascinating and just a really fantastic experience to read such a, a classic, but something that you're kind of familiar with. It's strange that we're in lockdown talking about this novel, David, and of course you recorded it before any of this happened. Hmm. And yet we're talking about a novel well over a century ago, 
about how all of life suddenly changes and everything that we held to be true and absolute is taken away from us with this pestilence, with this this evil presence in our lives. Mm. Is that, do you think, why this book still resonates so much with people because of its its very base fears that it brings out in us? I think so. It's just such a, a fantastically descriptive book. And there are stories, very famous stories, of uh, back in when Richard Burton was reading it, or Orson Welles, I can't remember which one it was. Yeah, it was Orson Welles. Of people literally running into the streets thinking this was actually happening. You know, So it's, it's an, an incredibly descriptive book and it's full of fear and full of foreboding and just the idea that this is actually happening. You know, I, I just missed the kind of panic, the uh, supermarket panic. And I, I flew into London about a week after lockdown and just walked through an empty Heathrow. I've never seen it like that. And you did start thinking, my God, I've just never seen it like this. This is foreboding. You know, my wife tells me that the, you know, that the, the were pushing and shoving in supermarkets and there were a real fear. You know, I think we now people have got a handle over it and there aren't fights in the toilet, toilet roll aisle. But, you know, there was a real sense of fear. And that's the one, that's the, the genius of the book is that it's captures that sense of panic and growing sense of panic. And some people go, no, it's okay. But others sort of thinking, well, I, you know, I, I better go to the shops today. Have you, and we'll get to your first object in a moment, which is YouTube, but have you thought how perhaps you want to change your life after this? Because people are starting to ask questions about what normal will look like after this. Oh, completely just for some reason I turn down a few things I normally I normally never do and they're charity things as well I normally always say yes to those things but I turned down a few things before I came back because something was just telling me I need to stop I need to rest and you know I had a as I say a difficult year last year with a documentary and normally I come back and I have two months in London and before I know it I'm rushing after this and I'm rushing after that and I'm said yes to this podcast and yes to that interview and yes to the, And before I know it, I'm just overrun with stuff to do. And something was just telling me I should not do that this time. I, I, I've been forced to say no. And it's really taught me, listen, I, I bought this house four years ago and this is the longest period I've ever been in it. Three weeks is the longest period I've ever been in it in one time, wow. which sort of tells me that I'm spending way too much time away from my family. And, and I need to prioritize and I need to start saying no. You know, lots of people are really struggling right now. And again, that's made me feel really lucky and really appreciative of what I have, really appreciative of how hard I've worked for that. And it's really made me think, you know, I need to, just rearrange things a little bit here and um, put my priorities, you know, in place. And if I do have two months off, I'm going to take a month off and do nothing. Mm. It's really making me rearrange everything and realise the value of everything. And just, um, I feel really relaxed and very calm. And this is the first time I've, I could say that in a long time, a long time. Let's talk about YouTube and accents, because that's your first object. 
So, is this where you go to then when you're trying to develop an accent? Completely. I mean, um, it's a wonderful resource for actors, for research resource. And I remember, when, again, doing Homeland, you know, all, all of my sort of black American voices were sort of blue-collar comedians, like Richard Pryor, Eddie Murphy. You talking like that, man? Come on, man. I thought, well, the head of the CIA is not going to talk like that. <laughs> jive so, talking, yeah, he's not going to be doing jive that. Jive talking, do. <laughs> yeah. So I really had to, I went on and I just literally were black professors and I didn't, black American professors and all these guys came up and then I, I searched for journal, black journalists and they got all these black American journalists and listened, carefully listened to their voice and their cadence and just found a voice that, that fit and suited me and um, away, away I was. And without that resource of YouTube, I would have been in real trouble because I had 16 days from getting the job to shooting the pilot. I'd never done an American accent before in my life. I knew nothing about the CIA. So I just went on YouTube, tapped in CIA, found all these documentaries and just managed to formulate a character just literally from looking at my laptop. So it's a great resource for actors to do their research. So I would say, yes, it's definitely one of my chosen few. That's superb that uh, you did that. So when playing a warlord from Sierra Leone in Blood Diamond, Mm. where, I mean... What you start googling? Okay, because there's not they don't tend to do interviews a lot. Those guys, right? So <laughs> trying to find that accent. Well, no, it's funny because the day before the audition, my child had been born, my daughter had been born, and I was really high and just really kind of full of beans. And um, went in to meet the director and Ed Zwick. I'll never forget it. And we just we just chatted about kids because <laughs> he could just see I was just so kind of on cloud nine. And then he said, "Okay, let's uh, read the script." So I sort of started reading the character and, and uh, he said, you switched from being a loving father to being an absolute nasty African baddie with great ease and with humour. He said, I didn't, wasn't expecting that. And I said, well, you know, this, they don't think they're warlords. They don't think they're bad. They think they're rather entertaining. So I sort of put that joy into what I was saying. And he, he just looked at me and went, I'll see, I'll see you later. <laughs> that's all he did I'll see you later and about four four months later I got the I got the gig and the rest is kind of history but it was just fun because he just said to me just keep doing what you're doing basically and all the way through that job I was improvising left right and center and the big story is that that when I got on the plane to go to shoot the film in South Africa there was um there was a new script uh, for me on the plane um in the car rather and I read it on the plane and there was there were all these scenes in the rebel camp that my character wasn't in <laughs> and I thought they're missing a trick here this character's great he's great so when I got to South Africa and Ed asked to see me I said Ed I said you're missing a trick with this character man he should be in all of these scenes he's really really I said I don't have to speak you don't have to pay me I'll turn up and just sit in the background and I think he just thought I was trying to make my part bigger but on the first day of filming, I could see he was doing this huge tracking shot of the mines and my dialogue, I'm speaking over this huge tracking shot. And I could see what he was doing, but I only had like two lines. I thought that's not enough. So I just started improvising. <laughs> Are you is fighting body people? Are you is fighting for All this stuff. <laughs> After about an hour and a half, Edzwick comes up to me and says, where are you getting all this stuff from? I said, I'm just improvising. He said, keep going. Just keep going. And at the end of the day, 
He came knocking on my trailer door and he went, about your character, you're absolutely right. <laughs> and he went home that night and phoned Leo and rewrote the whole script. And that's how I became the sort of film's bad guy. That's amazing. Uh, I, you know, kidnapping his son at the end, that was never in the script. So he made me kidnap his son and then he had to go and find his son and then big fight between me and Jimon. And that whole sequence at the end was completely um, made up because, because I became the sort of bad guy. So I was kind of pleased with that. Gosh. Is that something that, that comes naturally to you to be confident enough to say, look, why don't we try this? Why don't we try? Because I guess some directors take that well, some less so. Most, yeah. I mean, you couldn't do that on a TV script because it's so tight. But um, something like a movie, throw it in, give it a, give it a go. I'm, I'm all for suggesting things to directors. And sometimes you say, sometimes they go with it and sometimes they don't. And a lot of the times they do because they see, no, that, that, that works. Yeah, go ahead. And again, I'm in, I, I love being sort of in character. So, um, yeah, I'll, I'll just suggest something and go with it. And if it, if it works, it works. Yeah. Uh, next object is a tie. Why? Again, um, for all my auditions, I always dress up and I seem to play quite a lot of sort of authoritarian types. For my auditions, I will put a shirt and tie on and it has to be a specific tie. It can't just be a red tie or a blue. It has to be the right tie. So there's various auditions have actually gone shopping for a tie that looks right. And again, with Estes, I went through my wardrobe and found what I thought would be the right tie that he would wear. And I know that when they watched my audition for Homeland, they said as soon as he came on the screen, that was him. That was him. That's, that's what the producer said. You just were Estes. Because I had the tie on, this, I had a, a, a particular shirt, I had a particular jacket, you know. So it, it's it's about. I see. I love dressing up. I mean, acting for me is all about dressing up. You know, there's, there's there are certain actors who can't stand going to wardrobe fittings. I love it. I want to see what I'm wearing. I want to see what I am. I want to see what I what I what I become. So again, I would say for. For Estes and for Homeland, which is the part, literally the part that changed my whole career, I would say yes. I don't even remember the tie I wore. Tell me about that tie. Tell me about that it tie. Was, it was my friend's tie. He's an Italian, and he uh, he he was a very you know, he was a, a businessman, and you know whenever he um, every year he'd change his wardrobe, and he was always coming down to London to see me after after a meeting, and he'd say, "Do you want this? Do you want that? Do you want this?" And I saw that tie, saw him wear this tie, and I said, I want that tie. He took it off there, and then he went, here, have it. And I remember when I was going through my wardrobe, I saw it, and I went, that's the tie. It's, it's a businessman. It's Mr. It's Mr. Mr. Present and Correct. And um, I picked it out, and that's the one I wore. That's incredible, that attention to detail that you have. Yeah, it has to be right. You, know, you have to comb your hair. You know, you have to, if you want to party in here, you have to party here. Whatever you feel. For me, whatever, whatever I feel will work, I have to do it. And with Estes, yeah, it was, I had a suit on, even though I was just, you know, it was just head and shoulders. I had the full suit on, shirt, tucked in, everything. I had to be correct. Could you not be him without dressing like that? Like if you'd gone in in a T-shirt and a hoodie, there is no way you could have delivered him. No wouldn't feel right just the way you hold yourself as, as I say you know I often as just as an actor I often do rehearsals in costume because you stand differently yes if I do a rehearsal 
a TV rehearsal in a pair of jeans and, you know, a T-shirt. And then I go and get dressed and come back on. I just feel awkward. I want to feel how I'm going to stand in the suit. You stand differently in the suit. You hold yourself differently in a suit. So if I can, as, 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 as many times as I can, I will do my rehearsal in costume. So when you were doing this, the audio book, you didn't feel the need to do that. How did you then create an atmosphere by which you could project who this character was in War of the Worlds without any of that? Well, there were many different characters in, in that book. So there's Indeed. There's soldiers and you know, sometimes they use a voice like that. You know, I just picture this soldier. No, you just picture picture people, and um, my voice just automatically went there, you know. And uh, in the, the, the guy he gets the guy he gets trapped with in the basement, who's slightly crazy, so he's, he's a bit breathy, and it just came. You know, you start getting into it, and sometimes it, you know we'd stop in the middle of a chapter and come back the next day, and he'd say, "Oh, do you want to remember what voice you did?" And it just I said, "No, I know what it is because it just comes to me." It's, you know, I just feel frantic. The guy, he's, he's crazy. He's in a basement. It's, it's, you know, that kind of frantic, breathy, sort of desperate sort of voice, which is different to the soldier's voice. And they just start melding into each one has its own character. It was just so much fun to do because you start, you know, disappearing into these different voices and, you know, some posh voices who boarding trains and, in Reading and heading down to London for the weekend, not knowing that there's, there'd been attacked by Martians. You know, it's sort of very, very calm. And what are we going here, darling? And, you know, so it's sort of, it becomes like a living piece. And it's the first time I've done such a, a descriptive book like that. So it was great fun to do. I hope I can do some more. Were there any of the voices, David, that you'd ever used before, impressions that you did uh, to you or your mates or whatever? Was there anything or was every single accent or ones you'd used in roles before or was every single accent something that you just created for War of the Worlds? I'm sure I've used them at some point in my career. I'm, you know, you have a, a bag of, you have a bag of Cockney like that, you know, you talk like that, you know. So I remember doing a play at Rada where I talked like that. It, it was a tramp, it was a tramp. It like, so that came naturally. And it's just where you place it. So you might do one which is a bit more nasal, you know, you know, which you probably mess about doing some things like that. So, yeah, I probably have used those voices before, but it was um, fun to to put them to such uh, dramatic usage. Let's go to your next object, and it's a piece of music. Mm. Symphony Number no. 3, Henrik Gorecki. Oh, it's beautiful. Have you ever heard it? No. Oh, man. Tell me about this. Gorecki is a Polish composer and I think he was writing it about the Holocaust and it's just a tremendously sad beautiful piece of music but very very melancholic very very melancholic and you sort of listen to this mezzo-soprano sort of sing these are you know this chorus and it just goes right through you and I listen to it every night before I play the fellow every single night. It's so sorrowful and beautiful. It just locked me into Othello. And because it's beautiful, but sorrowful, and one gets a sense of Othello prior to the play, sort of being happy, but being 
tremendously sad because he knows sort of the trouble this is going to stir up, this marriage to this young girl, young white girl. You know, he's he's confident that there's a there's something in him which is there's a sense of foreboding, and throughout the play, as as his lot gets progressively worse, as I get more and more sort of upset, this music starts to get louder and louder in my inner ear, in my inner mind, and it, it really kind of keyed me in quite beautifully. How important is music to you, David? How does it help with your emotions? Oh, very. I've had one bad day, one bad lockdown day so far. I've uh, been quite lucky. But I, I remember I got out of bed, I think it was the second week, and it was a Wednesday, and it was grey, cold, and we were inside, and I just felt really down. And I just thought, man, it's a Donny Hathaway day. It's a Donny Hathaway day. And I just said, Alexa, <laughs> let's go. <laughs> Get Donny, play a Donny Hathaway mix. And it just, man, just took me away. Just took me away into the into the, the music. And I felt better, you know, just listening to some Donny Hathaway, just listening to some tunes, you know. And as I say, I listen to it to get into character sometimes. I listen to it to get me out of character sometimes. I listen many times when I'm about to go on stage, I'll do a particular mix, which I'll play, which pumps me up and uh, gets you in the mood. So, yeah, it's very, very important for me and very important for me as an actor, as an artist, to, to, to use music to get me either energised or just pumped up or in the right sort of mood. Now, look, usually at this time we hear an extract from the audiobook, so let's hear a moment from near the beginning of War of the Worlds. Few people realise the immensity of vacancy in which the dust of the material universe swims. Near it in the field, I remember, were three faint points of light, three telescopic stars infinitely remote, and all around it an unfathomable darkness of empty space. You know how that blackness looks on a frosty starlight night. In a telescope it seems far profounder, and invisible to me, because it was so remote and small, flying swiftly and steadily towards me, across that incredible distance, drawing nearer every minute by so many thousands of miles, came the thing that they were sending us. The thing that was to bring so much struggle and calamity and death to this earth. That was War of the Worlds, written by H.G. Wells and read by my guest David Harewood, and it's available to buy now, and you can find the link in the programme notes of this episode. Energy Levels. It's definitely not a sprint. It's a marathon doing an audio book, isn't it? It's in fact a number of marathons, it probably seems like. <laughs> As I say, there's a couple of chapters that are incredibly tough because he's describing the, the metallic nature of their skin and their eyes and how they moved and, you know, the tubular shapes that one tube fitted into another tube, which then connected to the leg and it became the thing stood up. And I mean, it's incredibly, incredibly descriptive but he goes into such detail chemical detail the makeup of the skin the, the makeup of the gas that came out of their their sort of weapon and it's uh it's it was it was tough really really tough to to read but um there were other chapters that just wow just 
were just incredible. How did your voice hold up? I took a flask in every day <laughs> with um, honey and um, hot water. Constant, constantly drinking that. Throat lozenges, particularly when you're doing the voices. Uh, so it was just really, really, really good fun and had just a, a, a great, a great thing to do. And I'm, I'm, I'm so pleased that Penguin asked me to do it. Honoured, honoured. And lastly, I guess it's a weird question to ask anyone at the moment, but. What's next? I mean, what's in the can that's ready to roll out? Well, I just did a really amazing documentary, which will be out on Channel 5, called A Thousand Years a Slave. And they are taking the prominent British people, Black Britons, and I think a couple of White Britons too, back through their ancestral history. So I just came back from Barbados, where I followed my family tree right back to 1824 and slavery and met a historian, talked about what life would have been like for these, you know, for my great, 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 great grandfather, um, the punishments he would have been um, meted out, what would have been meted out, and saw some branding irons, the chains, read something called the Slave Code, which was written by the English in wow. 1653, I believe. And it really is a period of history which has conveniently been forgotten, but it's extraordinary. It's an extraordinary history of abuse. One really realises just how much money was made, how much money was made for like 200 years on the backs of enslaved Africans. You know, we, you know, we, so that was a really extraordinary journey for me to, to go on and quite emotional, but particularly, you know, for me, I'm, I'm actually writing a book at the moment, which is about mental health and and being black and being British and the, the conflict that I feel, you know, in that. And, you know, this trip was perfect for that because it sort of sort of draws me in. Now you, you look at my family tree and you've got, you've got my great, great, great grandfather who was a slave. And then you've got, you know, his son who was born free. And then his son who was, Nathaniel, and then his son, who was Benjamin, and then his son, who was Romeo, my dad, my dad, and then you get this other Harewood, David Harewood, who's the only one born in England, the only Harewood born in England, and you think here I am, kind of returning back to the sort of belly of the beast, as it were. So it was quite an extraordinary trip to sort of see how the journey has sort of been made and what it means for me. So that. That program will come out on Channel 5 very soon. Uh, my book will be hopefully here uh, next year. Um, other than that, um, it's going to be back to Supergirl for another season. Yes, my kids will be over the moon with that. They love you in Supergirl. <laughs> yeah, we'll be doing a bit, 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 bit more of that. And then who knows? Then who knows? Um, we, uh, I, I look forward to, to the future. Mm, and balancing time between work and family. Well, I can say no. No thanks. I'll I'll stay I'll stay at home for many years. Nihal, I'm sure you've been there, man. It's yes, yes, yes because you've got to pay the mortgage. Yeah, you've just 100%. got to pay the mortgage. I think I'm still there, rude boy. I think I'm still there. Trust me, I'm that daddy. I'm still there. You know it, um, you know but it. yeah, no, I feel you. No, I feel you. I absolutely, I absolutely feel you. And one thing it's taught me actually is is that is spending time. I mean, look, one thing I feel truly blessed for is that you said yes to come in and speaking to us on the Penguin Podcast today, David. It's always great to catch up with you. Thank you. 
In February 1945, the city of Dresden was obliterated by bombs weighing over 1,000 pounds being dropped from the sky. Was this a legitimate military target in war, or was this mass murder? Sinclair Mackay takes us on a minute-by-minute account of the bombing and the reconstruction. History that will never be forgotten. Just a few yards from this square is the elegant terrace that overlooks the River Elbe and its curiously wide banks. Now, as then, this stone walkway stretches along to the Academy of Arts with its glittering glass dome. Just as with the Catholic Cathedral, any stroll along here somehow takes place in two different time streams. You are there, in the present, gazing along the curving valley of the Elbe, and at the same time you are seeing, against the clear, cold night sky, the hundreds of bombers swooping in from the west. You envisage the terrified crowd of people around you, trying to escape the furnace flare heat, making, as if by instinct, for the river. This is the macabre truth of Dresden. Every vision of beauty carries a split-second awareness of the most terrible violence. The audiobook edition of Dresden is available to download now.